Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how and what we write. My guest today is Jodie Hauser. Jodie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So for the benefit of listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, as you said, I'm Jody Hauser. Uh, I write lots of comics. Uh, I tend to do what people would call work for hire comics, which means I work on properties that other people own. So I've written superheroes like Supergirl and Spider-Man. I've written uh, licensed books like Star Wars, Doctor Who, Stranger Things, uh, just lots and lots and lots of comics, basically. <laughs> um, so how did you get started you uh if i recall correctly i've read that you have been writing from you know quite a young age and you did go to college to study creative writing is that right yes uh i started i guess technically writing when i was seven i decided i wanted to be a professional writer when i was eight uh, pretty much because my teacher at the time told me i was talented at it and it was sort of like oh no one's ever told me i'm talented at something before i guess that's you know what i need to do the rest of my life uh so <laughs> Uh, luckily I actually liked writing. Uh, so I kept going, you know, focusing on that all through school. I did like literary magazine in high school. I did a summer writing program and yes, then I went to college, uh, for, with a creative writing focus. And then I ended up going to grad school and getting my MFA because my last year of college, I took my first screenwriting course and it was kind of, oh, this is what I should have actually been studying the whole time. Uh, I like this more than fiction prose. So then I basically went to grad school because I sort of had a bit of an upheaval and thought maybe I wanted to focus on screenwriting instead of trying to write novels. So so that's interesting. So you, up until that point, you'd only tried writing prose. Uh, prose and stage plays. And I think that's because, you know, when you decide you want to write when you're eight years old, your exposure to what a writer does is still fairly small. And I knew that writers wrote books because I read them and I knew they wrote plays because we read those in school. So the fact that people also wrote movies and TV shows and comics like that hadn't quite clicked with me yet at that young of an age. And, uh, I think also I, I was always very, uh, much an academic kid. So until someone sort of explained to me the process for doing other things, it didn't quite connect with me, at least as a kid, to try to go out and just do it on my own or work out on my own how the industry worked or how the writing format worked. So I was very much, a, I'm going to take a class in this and that's how I will learn about it. <laughs> so, I mean, I can sympathize. I was pretty much the same in the, yeah, I had no idea how any of it worked in terms of an industry or yeah, getting into it. Uh, and yes, like you, my exposure, I mean, I had comics as well as books. Um, but certainly the idea that, you know, I could go to school and study how to be a screenwriter or something had never even occurred to me. The di main difference is when I over here in the UK and when I was at school, there were no official university level creative writing courses at least not that i had ever come across i've always been a bit jealous of the creative writing mfas that all the americans i know do and, and i know for me part of it was you know i i was graduating college with an english degree and you know part of it was i definitely wanted to learn more because i was delving into this new medium of writing but also i just didn't really know what the heck to do job wise otherwise you know it's it's an english <laughs> undergrad degree like 
there's millions of us. No one really cares. So I also definitely went to grad school uh, to an extent to delay having to figure out what to do with my life and, you know, how to keep from starving to death and all of that. So what did you do after you got your MFA? Uh, Well, after I got my MFA, which I did with a screenwriting focus, I moved back home for a year with my family to save up money to move to L.A. and then found a job. uh, And this was in Florida, found a a day job that was so just abysmal. I ended up moving out to L.A. before I found a job out here. Oh, wow. Uh, And luckily that worked out. I I moved out uh, in 2005 when the economy was a little bit better and you could uh, have the hopes of finding a job in a few weeks, which I did. Not a great job again, but, you know, something that let me pay my rent and buy food and all those uh, important living things. Uh, And so how long did it take you to well, what were your steps to then actually start getting, you know, professional work? Uh, it was funny because, you know, I came out again, focused on screenwriting. So I was, you know, writing spec scripts and, uh, you know, uh, soliciting agents and getting a lot of no's and trying to do a little bit of networking. Uh, and in the meantime, I was sort of of the mind that, well, everyone moves to L.A. and says they want to be a screenwriter and I don't have any credits or anything yet. So I should do something to prove that I'm actually putting in the work that people can go and see. And uh, when I was in grad school, a friend of mine was working in web comics and he was part of this site called Modern Tales that I got really into reading. And I was like, I'm not a great artist, but I could probably do sort of like a strip style comic, especially if I just, you know, do a couple drawings and reuse them. Mm. over and over and over and over. So I started doing web comics just so I could say I'm a writer and you know this isn't exactly what I'm planning to do with my life, but here is a website I can point you to to show you I am putting up stuff on a weekly basis. Uh so it was initially a thing I wanted to just have that I could show that I was doing some sort of writing work. Uh and I ended up doing web comics for close to 10 years, I think. I think it was about nine years. Oh, wow. Uh, the first one was bad and I've taken it offline. Uh, <laughs> and then the, sec- the second one, which is still up, is called Cupcake Pow. And it's uh, sort of a satire of a comic for girls with everything is like cute and girly, but then just sort of awful. Also, it's uh, very much something that I like tonally. And uh, so that was sort of my initial foray into doing comics just as like a, a side thing to practice writing on a regular basis and putting it out for people to see yeah i remember modern tales is it still going uh i don't think so but it's it's funny because through my current comics work i got to meet uh shannon garrity who uh wrote narbonic and wrote Mm -hmm. andrew narbonic which was the first web comic i just really got into and read the whole thing and just love the story of. So it was cool to get to meet her and tell her that she was part of my you know sort of origin story for comics it's funny, 20 years ago, or 15 years ago, I suppose it would have been at the heyday of that sort of thing, I always used to tell people who asked me how to get into comics to make webcomics, uh, you know, sort of as portfolio pieces, and as you said, as practice as well, as good practice of delivering stuff on time, uh, you know, having to work to a regular schedule, because obviously that's a very big part of the comics industry. Um, but these days... I mean, web comics still exist for sure, but they don't. They feel it feels like the industry's kind of moved on from them as uh, as a phenomenon. Uh, I would. 
would say aside from maybe Webtoons, which is, you know, Webtoons is huge. Their readership is just astonishing, but it is a different format than the webcomics that we were reading, like you said, a decade or two ago, because uh, they're sort of using the infinite canvas idea yeah. where it just keeps scrolling down, down, down. And I know, I know some people on Webtoons are converting to print, and I'm really interested to see how that conversion goes, because I feel like part of the thing that's so cool about that is the you know, you just keep scrolling and you can have all the panels bleed into each other. And it's just, it's sort of such a cool take on sequential storytelling. Right. But as you say, how's that going to translate to the page? I mean, this is very yeah. different to, you know, Scott Kurtz did it with PVP, obviously, you know, uh, putting them out as print collections, but they were just three panel gag strips. So that was easy to put on a page. Yeah, I did this. I did the same thing for Cupcake Pow. I did a small run uh, back at the beginning when I was tabling at conventions, so I'd have something to sell. And because it was just a rectangle, four panel, you know, gag thing that fit really easily on a page. So, uh, I mean, I learned a I, I learned a bit about formatting for print. So that was a great experiment. But yeah, yeah. I, I only mentioned Scott because I remember the furore from the comics fandom when he announced that he was doing a print edition and. Uh, uh, he got a, a lot of brickbats from people for uh, having the temerity to think that people might want to read a printed compilation of a webcomic. <laughs> so, I, I remember the the other thing. Yeah, it happened the other way when Mark Wade started Throwbent and comic shops were furious. Oh, he was yeah. doing something digitally. And I, I, I guess I never really understood the divide between the two because it's just a way to reach more viewers and, and get more people reading comics and, does it really matter the format at the end of the day, as long as, you know, people are enjoying the stories and jumping in and supporting them? I mean, I think people, I think what we can take from this is that people in comics will argue and get angry about absolutely anything. Really? I mean, that's what So, but there's an interesting thought, actually. So you learn to write doing web comics, but they were, as you say, in a kind of semi-traditional format but still it is different so how do you think that prepared you for then doing longer form comics that were originally printed i mean i think the main thing it did was sort of get me to think about the the amount of space the dialogue will take up on a page or inside of a panel because i was actually lettering all those myself and there would be times when i'd you know have scripted it out and i'd be putting it together and the dialogue just wouldn't fit right on the page or where the line broke for the dialogue just looked really awkward. So I'd have to rewrite on the fly to make sure it not only read well, but it just the shape of it worked inside the panel. So I think I learned a little bit about that. And even though I've of all the comics I've written, I've only lettered one short story myself. I do sort of think about that. Uh, in terms of how it's going to affect the letters, and especially uh, if anyone knows anything about lettering in comics, that's one of the last steps. And the letters, or and the, along with the colorists, are the people who are usually most crunch for time, because if anything else is delayed further upstream, it, it all comes down to them. So, uh, learning how I can make a letterer's job easier is was very very beneficial, I think, as a comics writer. Yeah, they're always the people at the sharp end of the uh, of the business, aren't they, unfortunately? Yeah, but in terms of more traditional comic book type writing, uh, I, I ended up adapting my master's thesis, which was a screenplay, into a four-issue 
comic miniseries just to try out the format. Oh, right. You know, with a story I was super familiar with because I'd rewritten it, you know, six times, seven times for while I was doing my master's thesis. Uh, And the first draft was just bad. It was not, it was, it was awful Uh, because I didn't know what I was doing. I think the only uh, really foray into how to write a comic script was I read, you know, like writing comics the DC way, which I'd gotten uh, working at a comic shop. So I wrote this just awful, awful draft, set it aside, spent probably close to a year just reading and rereading, you know, comics that I loved going back to when I was a teenager, uh, checking stuff out from the library that I hadn't, I'd been meaning to read and hadn't read, borrowing stuff from friends and just sort of trying to absorb the format as much as I could on the reading side and sort of getting a feel for the rhythm of it. Cause I think that was what was most missing with those first attempts was I didn't have a good feel for how to pace it out. I think that's often the case though, isn't it? For people who have, you know, trained or have experience in writing one medium when they come to comics. Uh, so often the first attempts, as you say, just aren't very paced very well because they're it's a very unique medium in that sense, in the way that it's paced from panel to panel. There's really nothing else quite like it. And coming from screenwriting, I was used to, you know, people can move, people can, there can be sounds and, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so more I, than one thing able- can be happening at the same time. Yes. Uh, that was, that was probably <laughs> one of the biggest blocks for me was, you know, you're telling a story in freeze frame, really. Uh, and I think the thing that sort of made it click for me was not thinking of it as another type of screenwriting, but thinking of it as sort of a hybrid almost of screenwriting and poetry, because poetry is so much about the placement of things and where a line ends and uh, just how it's laid out on a page. So that was sort of the missing piece for me that made me go, oh, okay, so this is the approach I want to take for this. That's a really interesting call. I hadn't thought about that aspect. I had Amal El Mokhtar on here uh, many months ago now, uh, and we talked a lot about poetry in that, as as I'm sure you can imagine. But it had never occurred to me that, uh, yeah, comics, I suppose, has that connection to it in that, as you say, it is about placement of words and also choice of few words, you know, as as anyone who's worked in comics will tell you that... uh, the first mistake most writers make when they come to comics is writing too much, is using too many words per panel. As you say, you kind of learnt that from doing web comics and lettering them yourself. You have to have that economy of words. And, and I'm definitely one of the writers who, if I could do whole issues that were completely silent, I, I probably would. I actually don't like writing a ton of dialogue, and I'm always happy to trim it down. Uh, I think, I actually, I think some of that might go back to grad school because my screenwriting professor was sort of infamous for a red pen and, you know, you'd turn in your script pages for the week and you'd get them back where they, like so much was crossed out, like unnecessary, unnecessary, unnecessary. And if you got back a page where nothing was crossed out, it was like a huge achievement. <laughs> so I, I was probably one of the people who came into comics where I actually had to be told, no, you can actually write more than this. You know, you can give more detailed descriptions because unlike in screenwriting, you get to make some of these choices now. <laughs> it's uh, i hadn't heard of writing comics the dc way before i've heard of drawing comics the marvel way but i didn't know that dc had put one out about writing uh yeah i'm trying i might have messed up the title uh 
Yeah, it's the DC. It's the it's the DC Comics Guide to Writing Comics. It's uh, Dennis O'Neill wrote it. Oh, Dennis O'Neill, right, right. Well, I mean, if anybody's going to teach you how to do, yeah. it, you know, that's and, that's a master. And, and actually- the most frustrating thing uh, when I was reading that book is, again, coming from school and wanting to be told, like, here is the format, you know, for screenwriting. It's like, here are the exact margins that should be every page. Every page of a screenplay should look the same as a page in someone else's screenplay. Uh, and comics is sort of like, yeah, do what you yeah, want, whatever. you know, just <laughs> as long as it works, as long as it works for the rest of the creative team, it's fine. And I'm like, but no, what are what are the rules? I need the rules. No, you just make it up yourself. But <laughs> but that doesn't work for me. I want rules. I I what? So it, yeah, it took me a while to sort of get my head around that after coming from formats where everything is dictated very specifically. Mm. I'm, I mainly find it really interesting that like what a strange paradox. DC had used to have uh, you know back in the sort of eighties especially. Uh, and even 90s to an extent had a, a house art style you could always tell a dc book by looking at it because it looked like a dc book whereas marvel artists were all over the place but marvel definitely had a writing house style which dc didn't and yet dc is the one that produces a book telling you how to write and marvel's the one that t- produces a book telling you how to draw i think i think dc actually had a whole line of books that the writing book was part of where they covered sort of every part of the comic making process i might be wrong oh, but i know right, that it's right. like i'm pretty sure they had an inking book and a penciling book so uh, i mean i honestly love that big publishers will put out guides like that for people who are coming in. Cause again, like I said, I, I want to, I want a guide to how people do things like just trying to figure it out all on your own. Uh, that's hard. Even if you, yeah. you, you've been reading comics for decades. Well, and there's valuable stuff in there. I mean, people joke now about the drawing comics, the Marvel way book, because it's, it's so full of Stan Lee-isms, but there is some genuinely good comics advice in there. Stuff that's, you know, I've taken with me throughout my career. Yeah, that one actually, I don't think I've read. I should pick that one up. I mean, I'm not sure if it's still in print now, but it was, yeah, it was, uh, Stan wrote it and I think John Buschema, uh, Buschema, hmm. I'm not, I'm never sure how to pronounce his last name, um, wrote, uh, drew it. And, uh, I mean, I say Stan wrote it, you know, somebody else may have wrote it and he slapped his name on it. <laughs> it's, uh, but let's not go into that part of the industry. Um, so how did you... How did you make that move to print comics? Was your work noticed, your, your web comics work noticed by editors, or did you just decide that that was the area you wanted to push into? So what actually happened was Twitter. Uh, I had a couple friends on Twitter who uh, pointed me toward some anthologies that were taking pitches. Ah, and right. as, some, as someone who was sort of new to this, you know, writing a a few page story that seemed like a, a good, a good way to sort of just try my hand at it. And, you know, I wasn't thinking about it as a career move or anything. I was like, Oh, this seems fun. And uh, the first one that was published, uh, I actually was excited about because the whole thing was for charity. So it's like, Oh, I get to write it and it helps people. That's cool. And that turned out to be an anthology called Womanthology, which Kate, I think the Kickstarter was 2011. And at the time, it ended up being the most funded comic book Kickstarter of all time because uh, Jim Lee and Kevin Smith and Rob Liefeld and a bunch of big names jumped on to help promote it. And some of them even had uh, Kickstarter incentives. So that sort of blew up huge. 
And uh, one of the things that was of benefit to me specifically for that was I ended up working with two artists, but one of them was Fiona Staples. And Womanthology and Saga Number 1 came out on the same day. Oh, wow. They they hit comic shops on the same day. So I was one of the last people to work with Fiona before she blew up huge. Uh, And, uh, you know, her art's amazing, obviously, but just the fact that she had such name recognition after that was I had a story that she'd drawn half of and editors were actually willing to look at it, even though they had no idea who I was because they knew who Fiona was. Right. Just because Fiona was one of the hottest artists in the industry at that time. Yeah. And uh, actually the same thing for the other story I wrote, which uh, I actually wrote two stories for a uh, British zombie comics anthology called Dead Roots. And one of those stories was drawn by an artist, Eric Canetti, who uh, I don't think is super known outside of comics, but most people in comics know who Eric is and love his art. Uh, For people who don't know Eric, uh, he works a lot in animation storyboarding also. And I think one of his first jobs was working on Eon Flux for MTV. And his style sort of has a lot of that uh, feel to it. Uh, So, yeah, I was walking around. I I paid to have a little portfolio printed up. I had stories from with art from Fiona and Eric in it. So editors would actually be like, oh, I'll look at this because I want to see the art. Oh, the writing actually doesn't suck either. So (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I was uh, a lot of it was, you know, going out and pitching for anthologies, but then also just being very, very, very lucky in terms of the artists I got to work with. Right, but you still got to, you know, as everybody always says, you've got to make your own luck in a sense, haven't you? You've still got to get out there and do that work so that people can see it. Yeah, yeah. So what was your first, uh, you know, sort of like proper gig, quote unquote? Uh, My first proper gig was uh, because of these two anthologies, I ended up getting hired to write a short story for Vertigo uh, when they were doing these quarterly anthologies that were coming out. And Uh, there was one that was CMYK. So each quarter was a different print color. And your story was supposed to involve the color some way, either visually or as part of the story. Uh, And I got magenta, which of all the colors seemed like the least obvious, you know, cause it's like yellow, you think like sun or light or, you know, and cyan, someone did jazz cause blues. Uh, and I'm like magenta, what's magenta. And the first thing that popped into my head was, uh, nineties Barbies. Cause you know, oh, that, wow. that was the color of Barbie back then. Every, the packaging, everything was that, that shade of magenta. So I ended up writing this story about, an 11 year old girl dealing with death for the first time. And she sort of goes through this whole emotional journey with her little sisters, uh, Barbara Jean doll. I couldn't call it, you know, Barbie obviously, (laughs) but, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, going on an existential journey with her little sister's fashion doll. Uh, and it's honestly still one of my favorite things I've written and that story because it was vertigo, uh, you know, it was it was a lot more public than the other things I'd done, but it was also one of the best things I'd written. So uh, that 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 specific story ended up opening a lot more doors. Yeah, well, and those anthologies were widely read as well. They were very, you know, they were very popular. And uh, well, as with all Vertigo stuff, even, they may not have topped the charts, but all the right people were reading it. Certainly, every other editor in the industry would have been reading them. Yeah, and I worked with uh, Nathan Fox on that, and because he has daughters, uh, just the art was gorgeous, but looked 
authentic because I feel like there's a lot of artists who maybe don't have enough experience with kids to like they can maybe draw what kids look like but to really capture like a kid's mannerisms and emotions is a little harder and he just nailed it because he had daughters that were actually of similar age to the two girls in the comic oh that was handy <laughs> which I, di- I, I didn't find out about until after he'd finished drawing and I was like oh that's that's I mean obviously you're super talented but you have the life experience I see why this looks so good yeah, that's great so all right so let's address the sort of like your main career uh stage mm-hmm. then how did you wind up being almost like the sort of go-to person for licensed franchise comics you know as you said you've done so many so much kind of uh ex- what we call existing ip stuff uh where you're doing comics based on other properties like tv shows or movies uh and spin-offs and things like that how did you wind up being a kind of almost like a specialist in that area uh, i mean a lot of that goes back to my first book which uh idw ended up publishing womanthology and then uh one of the editors there denton tipton reached out to me because they had gotten the orphan black license and a couple folks who worked at idw had seen me tweeting about the show because i was a fan of the show uh and they asked if i would like to write the orphan black comic and uh it actually came up in conversation at San Diego Comic-Con, and uh, I definitely uttered some expletives, which I will not repeat here because <laughs> I was kind of blown away and excited about that. Uh, but so that was the first thing I ever did was a licensed book. And then the first issue was in Loot Crate that year. So its sales numbers were super, super big because of Loot Crate. Like I think it sold about a hundred thousand in comic shops, but then there was like another four hundred thousand through Loot Crate, oh, wow. something like that. So it ended up selling half a million copies, which is pretty unheard of in comics in the modern age. So it, it ended up being the number three selling comic of the year, and I outsold wow. Darth Vader number one of that month. Sorry, <laughs> Kieran, uh, and that the sales numbers ended up drawing a lot of attention to the book. So again, that, that's sort of a luck thing. If it hadn't been for Loot Crate, I don't know if people would have, uh, you know, taken a look at the book and seen, Oh, she actually sort of knows what she's doing. And that was an interesting project because it was almost half adaptation, half new material. We were sort of doing some stuff that was pretty much what you'd seen on screen with maybe a couple added scenes. And then, some issues were entirely new that were either flashbacks or things that had happened off page or, or off screen rather that were mentioned in the episodes, but we hadn't actually gotten to view what had happened with these characters. So it was an interesting mix of a lot of the stuff I'd end up doing later all in one book. How much of that was self-directed and how much of that was editorially driven then? And I, I what I mean by that is the, what you were just saying, the kind of the changes, you know, the diff, the the new stuff and the fact that it wasn't a straight adaptation and that you were trying to experiment and do new things with each issue. Um, I think it was a combo because uh, I was it was technically co-written by the showrunners. So they were not I was doing all the scripting, but we were sort of having, you know, phone meetings and coming up with the stories together. And early on, they wanted to have it be more of a straight adaptation but because I think that's less of a common thing in comics. I actually think it's become a little more common since we did the book, but, you know, as opposed to the nineties where every 
movie comic was just a one for one adaptation. Yeah. A lot of the licensed books uh, around, you know, five, six years ago were mostly original content. So we start, it started off mostly an adaptation and we just kept pushing it more toward new material the further we got through the miniseries. So it sort of evolved throughout. And that was definitely me and editorial both wanting to get to do original material because it's just, you know, we both felt that was more what readers are looking for. That's what they want in tie-in books. They want to see the bits of story and characterization that there isn't really time for, you know, in a short TV season. And how common have you found that to be where where the uh, original, you know, IP creators or showrunners or producers or whoever will get on a phone with you to discuss those kind of stories. Because certainly, as you say, when comic spinoffs were more straight adaptations, that would have been out of the question. Uh, I think it really varies from project to project. And it especially depends on how involved the licensors are in the comic itself. Um, because there, there they were credited as co-writers you know, obviously they wanted to have their say and have their input and be part of the process. Uh, but most of the comics I've done since then have been a lot more, you know, separate from the people who own the property. It's more, you know, me going through the editor and the editor discussing with the licensor and the editor serving as the go-between. There's definitely been meetings for different projects. I'd say uh, I'm one of the things I'm currently working on is the Critical Role comics. And obviously, because they're both the owners and the creators of the characters, uh, there's been a lot more discussion there than there have been with, you know, some of the bigger things like Lucasfilm, which is juggling, you know, dozens and projects across different mediums. Right. Yeah. You're not going to get on a phone with George Lucas and talk about <laughs> yeah, C-3PO's motivation or whatever. I've sadly never gotten to talk to George Lucas, no. <laughs> I mean, although you, you say, well, they wanted to be credited as co-writers, as if that kind of then naturally leads to them being involved in the writing. But, I mean, I'll name no names, but I'll just say that's that's not a guarantee in uh, franchise comics. Oh, no. And I think, honestly, they would have been even more involved if they hadn't mostly been on set uh, for the third season while we were working on the comic. And I can understand, you know, most of the comics tied into the first season. And when you're busy working two seasons later that's you know that's where your focus should be not necessarily on the past so sure but still yeah i think if it had happened in between seasons they probably would have been uh even more on the call and more involved with the process but you know it's what it's what they could fit in with their schedules sure yeah but still it's cool that uh that they wanted to be involved and were prepared to spend that time because yeah there are a lot of franchise owners who just don't have the time or who don't want to be involved uh, for one reason or another. Um, I mean, you mentioned Critical Role. Obviously, that's a huge thing. It's a big phenomenon. How on earth did you did you get that gig just <laughs> on the strength of your other franchise things, or was that through connections or what? Uh, that was a little more through connections, because I actually, uh, back in, you know, end of 2016 and then into 2017, I was actually doing some uh, live play RPG shows at Geek and Sundry back when Critical Role was also at Geek and Sundry. So I also right. just met some of them being around the offices. I was on a Doctor Who RPG show that uh, Talos and Jaffe and Matt Mercer both were on here and there. So I, I actually got to meet them through that and through some of the events that uh, Geek and Sundry, Geek and Sundry and Project Alpha did 
Uh, and then, uh, the, I mean, the, the funny thing was I was actually up at the Dark Horse offices before Rose City Comic Con a few years ago and just sort of happened to be there the same day that uh, Matt Mercer and Matt Coville were there discussing the next season, uh, the next miniseries for Critical Role. And because, you know, because I knew Matt Mercer, we all ended up grabbing lunch together. And then I just sort of ended up in their meeting because we went back to the offices <laughs> to eat. And then lunch just sort of transitioned into the meeting and I was like, well, no one's kicking me out. And yeah, I just mentioned, yeah, if there's ever space for other writers, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to work with you guys. Uh, and then a few months later, it turned out that Matt Coville was going to have to step back from writing the comics because his own, uh, business was taking off to the point where he didn't have time to do both. Uh, so Mercer reached out to me and was like, Hey, want to write some comics? And I was like, yeah, sure. So that, that's how I got involved in writing, uh, uh critical role Vox Machina origins volume two and volume three is currently coming out. So, uh, that's, that's been going great. Excellent. I love how, uh, these days role-playing just role-playing games lead to so many opportunities for so many people. I know so many people who've got work because they role-play or have got work in role-playing games and just kind of, and it's, I'm sure to younger people listening, that means nothing, but trust me, 30 years ago, <laughs> playing Dungeons and Dragons did not lead to work. Like <laughs> it was my very first uh, professional gigs were writing for a role-playing magazine called Arcane. And uh, nice. that that was not regarded as like, you know, big time mainstream work at the time, believe me. <laughs> well, I mean, one of my best friends I actually met through uh, RPG. I've been in a Star Wars RPG for, is it, I think it might be getting, it's either eight or nine years at this point. Oh, wow. Uh, and I met my friend Jackson Lansing through there because our characters ended up forming a sort of Han and Chewie type bond. And then we became friends through that. And he's one of the showrunners on Star Trek year five that I've been doing along with his uh, co-writer, Colin Kelly, who I've also now played in a bunch of RPGs with. So they're kind of my bosses, but I only met both of them because of RPGs. Yeah. So the more, the moral is play are a lot of RPGs. All Absolutely. The time. Play more games. <laughs> <laughs> so you are very prolific, uh, you know, and a hard worker and, again, as we've said several times, you do kind of specialize in franchise books. And I want to combine those two things into the age old question of, you know, not quite where do you get your ideas from, but do you have to be a kind of idea factory for, to keep up this level of work? Because you're writing so many stories, but so many of them are based on other people's properties that I imagine it's, well, I mean, maybe it's not, but I certainly would find it a difficult balance to strike, I think, uh, to find the right idea for the right title. So how do you, do you have a structure that allows you to kind of do that and make sure that you remain productive? I mean, I think the biggest thing, especially when you're working on licensed books, is to always make sure you're asking what it is that they're looking for and what they need, especially if it's something that's part of a show or property that's still ongoing. And you're sort of looking for to make something that slots in and adds to the overall world. Uh, so I think, you know, obviously you need to be pretty fast on the uptake. I think it's necessarily a little bit more of almost the improv yes. And than just simply 
coming up with a lot of ideas because you sort of need to know what's going on and be like, yes. And what if we looked at this character or this like event that you didn't get to see much of? So a lot of it's sort of being able to mine what's already there and spin it out in a new direction that no one has really worked on or been able to tell the story of before and, you know, find the stories that you actually want to do that with. Cause the thing I learned early on is you only really want to work on properties that aren't your own. If the story and the character is something you really want to tell, cause otherwise it's, it's going to be a slog. You're not going to write something that people really want to read. Um, so yeah, I only try to take, jobs that are properties and stories I'm specifically excited about. And it might be a property I'm not super familiar with, but I do the research and, you know, a character or as aspect of the world really jumps out to me and I get excited about telling that part of the story. Yeah, I think that's very sensible. I have that attitude towards uh, video games when I take on games work because I, I get offered a fair amount and I, I only take the gigs where yeah, as you say, where I think the, I'm going to be interested in doing this and this is exciting to me um, rather than just taking the gig because I need the money or whatever, because that just, yeah, you know, makes you unhappy. You produce bad work. It, it's a, it's maybe a short term game, but it's not worth it in the long term. Yeah, no, it's uh, and I mean, obviously, people take jobs primarily because they need to pay bills and food, but you have to be able to find what you love in there or you know you're going to burn out really fast yeah absolutely um so how do you go what's a, what's a typical day like for you then because like i say you are very prolific so i'm interested in finding out how you structure your day uh i tend to get working as early as i can that doesn't always happen especially now uh in in pandemic times i feel like p- the pandemic is kind of thrown my regular work process into something of a tail loop tailspin but uh it's it's special it's it's very much triage in the morning it's taking a look at what is due first what do i need to tackle specifically today figure out order of operations for i need to revise this but i need to finish the script but i need to do this outline and sort of once i nail that and just figure out what's the best process to get everything done that needs to be done that makes it a lot easier for me to work uh so and i'm pretty good at being able to split my attention and jump around different things and i think that actually goes back to grad school because uh i was going to emerson which is in boston which is very expensive so i kind of rushed through the program and took 150 percent class load most semesters so I was taking more writing classes than you're supposed to. And I had a lot of assignments to do in different mediums. So I got really used to jumping around and being able to shift my attention very quickly. So that's, that's really come in handy in my actual career. I think it comes in handy for all comics writers, doesn't it? Really? You have to be able to, if you're going to make a living in comics, you have to be able to switch projects and sort of refocus yourself on whatever the next thing is quickly, because otherwise you'd only write one book a month. Yeah. And, and no one can live off of that. And I actually, when when I started writing comics, I obviously still had a day job because I like occasionally having food and (laughs) I had to, I had to learn to squeeze in the writing when I could, because I had, you know, like I had a 30 minute lunch and I had two 15 minute breaks And I had to be able to shift immediately into writing mode to get the most out of those short bits of time, or otherwise I'd go home and be up 
way too late getting writing done, then wake up and go back to the day job. And I mean, there were times I had to do that because I started taking on more and more comics work. But if I could really get focused, I'd have a good hour of work done before I got home. Wow. So you were literally writing on your your lunch breaks? Yes. I would, I would, I would find an abandoned conference room, bring my little laptop, sit there, bang away furiously. Oops, time to go back to regular day job work, you know. Oh, 15 minute break, go get as much written as I can, then go back to my regular death. You know, (laughs) it was, yeah, I had to, I had to be able to shift my attention or I wouldn't have been able to meet the deadlines I had. Oh, I, I I couldn't even, yeah. (laughs) I mean, maybe if I'd had to, I might've learned how to do it, but I I can't think that I can't imagine that I would have been any good at that. Um, So how much do you normally get done on an average day? Now, because it sounds like you, when you need to, you have the capability to write very quickly, but obviously you don't need to keep that sort of pace up these days. No, uh, I mean, and I'd say a good day is writing five pages. That's what I try to do. Do I always hit that in pandemic times? No. Uh, But if I could get, you know, five pages written every weekday, that would pretty much pace out to more than I normally need to get done in a month. Uh, So that's, that's the goal. I don't always reach that goal, but I try. Uh, if I don't reach the five pages, that just means I have more to do the next day or the day after that. And that's when you get stuck with the days where you have to write most of an issue in a day, which you know I've done before and I've done to the point where I was happy with the work. But you know that, that also just means I'm not going to do any work the day after that or maybe two days after that because there's only so much gas in the engine. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of pace sucks. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But yeah, five five pages a day is about I, most comics writers that I know, myself included. That's a sort of, you know, a comfortable hard work day. Uh, it's like you know, yeah, it's hard work to get five pages done, but you can do it. You know, as you say, notwithstanding pandemic times. But normally, you're like, yeah, I can do five pages, um, and not burn out. You know, you can do that every day. That's fairly standard but more than that when you it's the days when you take on so much work that you're like oh actually i need to get 10 pages done every day that's when the workload can really start to get on top of you yeah and and the the main thing i learned pretty early on was i was very good at hitting deadlines until i got super sick with a con crud in uh, at the end of 2017 that just took me out for a while. It, it didn't help. I didn't enter my first international trip while I was sick. And that just oh. extended me being sick for a while. And the thing I learned was like, you know, if you're sick, if something comes up, uh, just talk to your editor ASAP, let them know that there might be a delay so they can work out the scheduling. Cause you don't want the people, you know, like I was saying earlier, the ones further down the line to really get crunched. So let your editor know, see if they can shift things around. Uh, so that everyone else is taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. Honesty is always the best policy with that sort of thing. If you know you're going to miss a deadline, just tell people as soon as you can, uh, as soon as you know. Yeah. It's also good to be wary of comics deadlines because sometimes the deadlines are based on when the licensor wants to see it or, you know, when we want to be able to give notes, but some of them are based on when the artist actually needs to start. Like we need to have the script this day so the artist can immediately start drawing it. And those are especially the deadlines you really, really, really want to stick to because that's when the whole process really is dependent on the day you're turning in the script. Sometimes there's a lot more padding in the schedule and that's when I feel 
better about asking the editor for like an extra day to to really get something right. Yeah, well, when the I mean the artist is the 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 one person in the chain of comics creation who puts in the most hours, you know, the most actual physical time and labor. And so yes, deadlines have to work around them. But that's how you also get to those situations where sometimes writers are feeding artists, oh here's three pages get started before they've written anything else. Like here's the first three pages. I'll write the next three pages while you're drawing those. Um, which I mean, in my opinion is no way to work because it will drive you insane, but I know people who've done, who've had to do it because of deadlines. Yeah. I've, I've definitely come into projects where, you know, maybe everyone got hired late or, you know, maybe I was the uh, last minute writer swooping in to help save the project when someone else couldn't make it for some other reason. But there's been times where it's like, yeah, we need the first five pages, you know, like tomorrow, get it done. And I, I don't love working that way. I'm, a, I'm fine working that way when it's needed. But the important thing to keep in mind is those pages are locked in now. You can't go back and yeah. change stuff because you have a better idea for later on. So you have to be really, really good at working around what's already done. Yeah, that, that that's why that would kill me because I'm a... I, I need to have, you know, the chapter or something done uh, before I can really polish it up to first draft status. I just, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, I found, especially in recent years, publishers are more likely to work Marvel method when that's the case where you basically don't do the dialogue. It's it's story first. You sort of write out, here are the things that happen, get it to the artist so they can start drawing it. And then when the art comes in, you add the dialogue and captions based on what's been drawn. Yeah. And I think I, I that's not my favorite way to work, but I think I prefer that maybe to writing a script piecemeal because it is going to be a little bit more cohesive. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what portion of your day is spent on coming up with new ideas rather than scripting something that you've already planned out? Or do you take whole days to do that? Uh, it, it honestly depends on the schedule. If I need to be getting pitches in or getting some pitch paragraph ideas in to go to a licensor, uh, that's going to take focus. Uh, but also if well, you know, there, that's something that's sort of being done in the background where the focus is getting the script done that's already been solicited to go to comic shops. That's what's going to be the focus that day. So, again, it really all depends on what the deadlines are for everything. I feel like, especially in comics, if you're taking on enough projects that you're making your living doing that, you just sort of have to be eminently flexible and let what the publishers need sort of guide your day to a large extent. And what's your process for going about developing working up an idea and let's say you know say that the doctor who comic people come to you and say right you know we need to know what your next story arc's going to be and maybe they might give you a, a prompt of some kind or maybe they'll leave it entirely up to you um but how do you then go about working up an idea what's your you know your stages of process for that I would say uh, Doctor Who's a good example because I think I have a little bit more of a specific process for that. But again, most of what I've been doing for Doctor Who has been 13, but I've also written some 10 and some other doctors. So usually I'll first pop in and rewatch an episode with that doctor, less to deal with what happens plot wise, but more to just really focus on their voice because mm -hmm. that, that sort of always has to be in my head. Uh, and then uh, I, I'll, 
I tend to brainstorm a lot away from the computer. So it'll be like cleaning up something or doing dishes or taking a shower uh, for a lot of the brainstorming process. Because uh, I feel like when you're just staring at a blank screen, it doesn't really help you come up with ideas. It's like, go for a walk, get some exercise, you know, give yourself the space to think. Uh, and for Doctor Who especially, I like to sort of get a good view of the whole story because there's always going to be like, trippy time stuff happening and you sort of want to know the end before the beginning because the end might take place before the beginning you don't know it's (laughs) doctor who stuff's crazy uh yeah so i tend to especially if there's a prompt or sort of a direction they want to go in sort of sit with it let it let it brew and then start typing stuff out uh but do a lot of the brewing away from the computer if i can and it sounds like a lot of it in your head as well. You don't sit there sort of scribbling in a notebook necessarily. No, I had a, a the it was the screenwriting professor I mentioned earlier actually said something early on in one of my classes that was basically thinking about writing counts as writing. I don't know if that's always true, but that really helped me get unstuck from the idea that I had to be like tapping keys or scribbling with a pencil for it to count as writing. It's like you can do the processing in your head before you start putting things down on paper and you're still doing the work. So I think that was actually super, super helpful to not feel like I have to be sitting there staring at the blank page for it to actually, you know, quote unquote count. I I, I like sitting staring at the blank page because <laughs> I, I don't like sitting there. Well, I work things out in my head. I mean, you're right. Staring out of the window is still writing and I'm I'm doing that. But once I start to think of ideas once things start coming to me then i need to write them down mainly because i'll forget them otherwise i just won't remember yeah Yeah, i mean i think i like to get to the point where i can sit down and just sort of do a furious burst of typing and maybe that won't be all of it and i'll have to get back up and walk away again but i i want to be at the point when i'm actually starting to hit keys that i can go for a while and i'm not stopping and starting it's like i have enough of it visualized that i know the words i'm going to put down right and do I mean I assume the answer to this is yes because of working on a lot of licensed stuff. But do you outline, you know, fairly comprehensively before you start? Uh, it actually honestly depends. I uh, outline specifically when projects want to see an outline before I go ahead to script. I'll always do it then. But a lot of the rest of the time, I don't do super extensive outlining. And it's weird because I always feel like it takes too much time, even though outlining can make the writing process faster. That's just sort of one of those weird brain glitches I have that I know I'm wrong, but I keep doing it. (laughs) So um, Doctor Who is actually one that I am less likely to do like a detailed outline of an issue or an arc. I tend to, I actually like to leave that one more loose because I think I like to echo the style of the doctor a little bit more where I like it to sort of ramble around and go into tangents and have the space for those just weird side conversations, because to me, it feels more like the show and more like the characters. So I tend to do, you know, more paragraph descriptions of the issues for Doctor Who specifically, like here are the specific things that need to happen. But then there's plenty of room for just the characters to be their characters. Right. But you do at least have some idea of what's going to happen in the plot then by the sounds of it. So it's just a very loose kind of outline. Yeah, it's like they need to go to this place and do this thing. And by the end of the issue, they're probably at this place. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty loose. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Sometimes it's a little more detailed than that. I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive because you would think because uh, because of, as you mentioned before, all the time travel stuff, you'd think that writing Doctor Who would need to be, you know, by its nature, something that you carefully outlined and planned beforehand. I mean, true, but also, does the Doctor really plan for any of this? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> also true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, and that's not to say I don't plan uh, Doctor Who and I just completely write it on the fly because that would be insane. But uh, I do like to leave as much room for experimentation and drifting off in that book because, again, that does feel more like the Doctor. It's it's me- it's method writing aside from I don't actually time travel. <laughs> It'd be great if I did. It'd be so much easier to get deadlines. I was going to say, are you, are you sure? Because <laughs> you do seem to get an awful lot written. <laughs> How do you uh, go about revising? then because you're especially again on the license titles i imagine you're getting notes not only from your editor but also probably from the license holder yes and uh luckily most of my editors will make sure that all the notes are sort of compiled into one set of notes before i get them because otherwise you end up with conflicting notes and that's that gets chaotic um i always try to do a revision myself before i send it in because uh, I hate sending in first drafts. And there's definitely been times where I've sent in a script and I'm like, wait, nope. And I've rewritten it. And then the next morning, emailed another draft to the editor and be like, disregard that draft yesterday. That's crap. This is better, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, I generally with notes, and, and I think it, it also is thanks to going through years of school and workshops, uh, you just kind of have to leave your ego at the door for notes if there's a really frustrating note, so I'll give myself a couple minutes to be frustrated about it, and then I'll push it aside and sit down and do the work because, you know, that's kind of what you got to do. If there's anything I feel really strongly about that is an issue, I will, you know, write up something for the editor to send to the licensor. Uh, I, if I'm especially heated about it, I will write up something, breathe and then edit it down to be polite and professional. <laughs> uh, I, but that, that's only happened a few times in, you know, the five years that I've been writing uh, licensed comics. So that that's pretty much a rarity. And honestly, I feel like pretty much all the licensors I've worked with, you know, if you, if you explain to them, like, why something's an issue or why this makes more sense, uh, I've never really had a lot of pushback on that. And uh, the one thing I I would say I've learned uh, working specifically with editors is if they suggest a solution that you don't like, that's not necessarily a problem. The main thing is to recognize the issue that they're talking about. And if you have a fix for it, that's more your own voice or your style, just fix the problem, you know, be able to see the problem that they're talking about. And if you have a different solution for it, that's fine. I've never had an editor who got angry that I took a note in a different direction, but still fixed what the issue was. Yeah, absolutely. I advocate that in all types of writing, actually, not just with notes that you receive from yeah, IP holders or producers or whatever, but even uh, feedback from beta readers. Um, if somebody has a problem with something, I will always try and find, rather than, as you say, looking at the solution, figure out well, what's the actual issue that they're having a problem with. And can I solve it in a in a better way? Um, yeah, and in a way that feels more natural to my own style. 
Yeah, exactly. And I feel like, you know, you, sometimes you have to do a little bit of backwards engineering there to figure out like, well, here's what they want to change. Why do they want the specific change? What is this fixing? Oh, okay, that's the problem. Here's how I would fix it. So that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I will say, though, I do sympathize also with the uh, the cool down period after writing an irate email. Uh, <laughs> I've definitely done that, especially with games where, yeah, you get some notes and you're like, but, but, but. <laughs> And I, th- I think everyone does. And, you know, I feel like that's such a standard part of the process that people shouldn't necessarily feel bad that they're upset or angry about a note. It's more about processing it on your own time and not letting it impact the work or how you're communicating with the people who are paying you money to do this job. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, a, f- a friend said to me not so long ago, actually, um, that he was once told by I'm not, I'm trying not to name any names, but he was working on a licensed property and he was sort of told by a veteran of that property, look, you can either be the guy who makes the change and does the work and then gets hired again, or you can be the guy who stomps off, throws his toys out the pram and never, ever gets hired again. And, you know, when you're dealing with people, when you're not the owner of something, I think that's a realistic uh, realization that you have to have. Yeah, I mean, you're playing with someone else's toys. It's not in your purview to break them unless you're told, no, it's cool to break them, rip its head off. That's fine. You know, it, you're not the one who gets to make that choice because at the end of the day, you know, you put them back in the sandbox and go off and someone else is going to get to play with them. But, you know, there's limits to what you can do and you have to be okay with that. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. So, all right. So, Jody, let's start to close this out. Um, what, when you sit down to write, what parts, do you really enjoy writing? What are the, the you know, the, either the, something in the process or particular scenes perhaps that you just really look forward to working on? Um, I think it tends to be scenes, uh, maybe a juicy bits of dialogue, the sort of character moments I've been excited about. Uh, I, I used to always write strictly linearly, you know, start page one, panel one and go on. But I've found you know, sometimes you just want to skip ahead and do that cool scene. And uh, sometimes also you're not sure how many pages that cool scene is going to take. So it's better to get the important fun bit out of the way and build the rest of the issue around that to make sure that the thing that you feel like it matters the most has the space to breathe. So uh, these days I still try to write as linearly as I can, but if I really feel the need to skip ahead and do the ending or the middle or this particular moment uh, that I give myself the space to do that. Yeah, I, exactly the same here. I always used to go for the juiciest part of the issue first, mainly because as you say, if that takes, because we're constrained in comics by physical pages, as you say, if that scene takes, if you plan for it to take six pages and then you write it and it takes eight and you're like, actually, I don't want to cut anything out of this. Well, then, you know, you've got to cut stuff out of the other scenes in that issue instead. Yeah. And then there's some days where, you know, you might not be feeling it as much. So you just sort of jump ahead and do the thing that's maybe not the most fun, but, you know, is going to be a little bit easier than some of the more difficult pages where you do have to make those decisions. So (laughs) I think every day it kind of is sort of looking at what do you need to get done? Where is your headspace at? And again, a little bit of triage to figure out the best way to get everything done and accomplished. Yeah. Sorry, I was only laughing there because I was thinking about my, the times I've done that when I've been feeling a bit lazy and thought, oh, I'll just do the easy bits today. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely done that. <laughs> um, so conversely then, what parts do you dread coming to write? What's your least favorite? I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like 
I feel like I, I, I don't know if they're my least favorite, but I get really intimidated sometimes about fight scenes. And, but, but with comics, one of the nice things with fight scenes is you can really depend on your artists who are so much better at laying things out and visualizing things. Cause that, you know, that's literally their job. So I tend to take the approach with fight scenes, especially if it's an artist I've worked with for a while and I have a good idea of how they do things and how they're capable with that. I'll leave a lot of the decisions and even sometimes some of the panel breakdowns to the artists. So necessarily instead of like this person hits this way and then this happens and then the, and do like, and doing a beat by beat breakdown, I'll lay out for the artist. Okay. This is how many pages we have. This is the amount of space you have. These are the things that need to happen. This is sort of the tone of the fight. Maybe this character is like winning for a while, but now this other character is, this is where this page sort of needs to end. So those sort of things I'll tend to break down maybe more paragraph style rather than panel by panel, because you know, that it's, the artist is going to do this a lot better than I'm going to do. So why not let them do the thing that they were hired to do and that they're better at doing than I am. Mark Miller famously in, uh, was it in Nemesis? I think it was in the first issue of Nemesis literally had like some, like a three page fight scene where the, the actual genuine script just said like, it's the most awesome fight scene you've ever seen. Go crazy. <laughs> that was it. I mean, I think, I, I think Tom King has done like Batman fights ninjas and, and stuff right. like that. Scripts too. So like you say, yeah, and, that's what the artist is there for, you know? Yeah. And, and honestly, I think at the end of the day, like, communicating with your artists, finding out the level of detail that makes them the most comfortable, like where they want to really have the space to sort of go at it and do cool stuff. Because uh, a script isn't the end product. It's not what people are going to see. It's a letter to the rest of the creative team about what the story is from your perspective and giving them room to throw their own perspectives in and tell the story their way. So making sure it works for the artist is really the most important thing i would say yeah i mean there's that old uh i think it was neil gaiman who once described it as love letter to an artist um and it is it's one area where they are similar to screenplays i suppose in that as you say it's not the finished product it's just a blueprint for what will become the finished product yeah so you know have fun with it and make sure everyone else working on it is having fun with it too because you know especially artists they're going to be spending so much time on this it's like you don't want them to just dread working with you and working on your story because you know it, it it's the same as when you don't like what you're writing it's not fun and it's going to show in the finished product all right jody what is something that you have read recently where the writing really impressed you and why well it's actually funny i found that uh during lockdown it's really been hard for me to get reading done uh mm. i don't i i'm not the only one i know who has that issue so i'm actually very behind on my reading, but I'm slowly starting to catch up on at least watching things. Uh, and uh, my boyfriend and I have actually started watching the first season of The Expanse, which I did see a number of years ago, but I had it playing while I was writing. So I didn't really focus enough to follow everything that was going on. So now I'm actually sitting and watching it and absorbing it. And that is a series where you really need to pay attention as well. Oh, yes. And I mean, I know this is based on books, so uh, which I've, I have friends who have read. And I think most of my friends uh, seem to actually prefer the show. And I wonder if it's because it is sort of crossing so many different uh, groups and worlds. But um, so far, I'm, we're only a few episodes in, but I'm just really enjoying sort of the mix of space politics and like noir detective and 
just the the way the mystery is sort of seeping through and tying things together. It's a it's a good slow burn so far, which I always appreciate seeing in a show. And I love uh, when the writing really gets a chance to explore who the characters are before you know sort of smashing them together. Yeah. Oh man, I can tell you, you've got. Uh... <laughs> a hell of a ride in front of you if you're only just starting on the expanse i'm sure everybody out there listening uh who like me has you know is sort of up to date with it is thinking the same thing like you have you have no idea (laughs) what ride you're in for it's going to be great i mean they're either thinking that or what the heck took so long jody jeez (laughs) oh no i mean i'm guilty of that as well I, i would never ding somebody for taking a while to get around to a a show but yeah seriously there is that show goes in directions you would never imagine uh, from the first few episodes. So yeah, you have a a lot of fun ahead of you. I mean, there's a lot of people whose opinions on science fiction and storytelling that I really respect who adore the show and, you know, name it among their favorite sci-fi properties in any medium. So that that I hold it in very high regard already. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) All right. So Jody, where can people find you online? Uh, I am on Twitter at Jody underscore Hauser, and I am on Instagram at Mind Eclipse. Mind Eclipse. Yes, that was uh, the first uh, domain I really used, and that's where I'll, my website is that hasn't been updated in like four years. So almost my entire comics career is not on there. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Instagram still uses that name, and someday I'll update my website. <laughs> All right. Uh, finally, what work of yours would you recommend that listeners check out if they haven't read anything by you before? Um, I would say, uh, two of the things I'm most proud of are Mother Panic from DC, which was part of the Young Animal Line. So that was a character I co-created and really got to develop a lot. And then Faith over at Valiant, which is a uh, sort of a love letter to nerddom and superheroes, and it's the story of a basically a geek girl who gets superpowers and gets to be a superhero for real. So uh, those were two projects. I was actually pretty much writing at the same time and are almost completely opposite in terms of tone. But uh, I would say they're two of the things I'm most proud of. And uh, especially uh, the licensed stuff I'm most proud of recently would be the Stranger Things, Star Wars and Doctor Who. Uh, the, I've been able to tell a lot of really cool stories in those worlds. Just a, just some small little properties. You may have heard of them. Yeah, I think they're I think they're really going to do well. You know, if the right audience finds them. <laughs> All right, Jody. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter, and that is also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe, and I'll see you next time.